Thank you for being here today uh, for our Sunday School class. Uh, of course, this month is uh, Missions Month at Cornerstone, and as a part of uh, Missions Month, we have been uh, kind of tracing the gospel, the expansion of the gospel um, from Carthage outward from week to week, uh, beginning uh, with our, the relationships we have here in Carthage, thinking a little bit broader to the four-state area, uh, the nation, and now this week we're thinking about uh, the advancement of the gospel internationally. Um, and with that in mind, we've asked uh, a friend of mine from Master's Seminary to come out and speak to us this week. Um, his name is Marco Scovert. Um, some of you uh, probably remember him uh, because he was uh, here with us back in 2018, um, preached to us one Sunday, told us a little bit about the, the ministry that he was doing there. And uh, there's been some changes since then. Um, when Marco uh, came down, he came down with Laura. Uh, they were just uh, seeing each other at the time, kind of courting. And uh, they've since married and had a child named Abigail. So I like to think that we had something to do with that because, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I took you out to lunch, you know, help, help set good things about you. And uh, yeah, yeah, you got the, there we go. So. Just something, a little way that we can contribute. So, uh, anyways, um, but Mark is going to come forward here during Sunday school, and he's going to tell us about the work that he's been doing in South Africa. He's been ministering in South Africa uh, since 2016 with Antioch Bible Church, and um, recently they've been uh, considering uh, getting a new church going in a community called Zansprite. He's going to uh, share with us about that, and um, you know, I. I I guess it's generally tell us what you guys are doing and, and possibly ways that we as a church can pray for them and support them. So, uh, anyways, Marco, why don't you come forward? Brian, do I need to be mindful to stay near a mic? Yes, that yeah. mic is recording. So okay. Uh, and, and that's where the live stream will pick up from the mic. Okay. All right. And is that the camera for the live stream right there? That, yeah. Right okay. Hello. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's even people actually watching they should be okay well good yeah it is nice to be with you guys again uh, this morning I really appreciate the opportunity Ryan to come and and share um, particularly <clears throat> about uh, the ministry uh, in South Africa um, that is a telling Ryan I need to learn how to use this pointer I just stick my finger and get up close to the thing there that is a um, map of the country of South Africa there. Uh, it is the southernmost country on the continent of Africa. And you can see the different provinces that it's broken up into. And right in the northeast is the biggest city in the country, Johannesburg. It's about 14 million people or so. It's kind of sprawled out similar to Los Angeles as opposed to New York City that's a bit more dense and builds up. And we have been uh, working primarily in a community there uh, on the west side of Johannesburg. Um, I started working there in January of 2018. So it had only been two months into the work there trying to plant a church in the community when I came here and was with you guys in March. So now it's been about uh, two and a half years, moving toward three years, uh, in the community there. The name of the community is Zanspreit. 
Zanspreit. I, I know you're not many this morning. I'd like you to, to say that together with me on three. One, two, three. Zanspreit. Okay, I've put it there. That is my own phonetical spelling in case uh, you thought that's not usually how it works. It's Afrikaans, and so it looks like Zanspruit or Zanspruit, but it is Zanspreit. And as I said, we've been seeking to plant a church there for about two and a half years. Uh, Zanspreit is an informal settlement. Maybe you've heard that terminology before. Maybe you're more familiar with something like a squatter camp or a shanty town. Okay, its constituents are primarily those who are either squatters, they have illegally taken possession of a plot of land uh, somewhere in a usually a large open field that does not belong to them, uh, or the constituents are those who have legally obtained a plot of land in that area, either having been given it by the government of South Africa or uh, by purchasing it themselves from one of the multiple private land owners in that area. Those who own uh, attractive land there will usually put some kind of a structure on that plot of land, right? And they will either live in it themselves or they will seek to make revenue from it by renting it to other people that move to the area. So there are some people renting from squatters, people who illegally seized some land and then built a structure on it, and they're renting it out to other people, uh, making money on land that was never theirs to begin with. And then there are those who actually purchased it as an investment, built a structure on it, new people would want to come, especially as the community is growing, and they're turning a buck through renting. Just some demographic general information on the community. These are a couple photos uh, from Google Earth, aerial views you get an idea uh, of the community from these photos, at least as, as far as the area and the density. So it is very hard to get accurate demographic information about the community. All right, the last time there was a census, I think was 2011, and even then it probably wasn't super accurate because this is an informal settlement. It's really low on the list as far as where you're trying to get your numbers for your national census and because of the high foreign population. They don't count foreigners in a national census. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. It is currently estimated, and it's a wide range, it's difficult, that there are somewhere between 50 to 70,000 households. 50 to 70,000 households. That would be, depending on the size of a family, anywhere between one to 200,000 people living in this community. Now, I don't know if, if you can tell from the map, but that total area is just under one square mile. So it is an extremely dense community as far as the people living there on top of one another. Um, shacks are lined up right next to each other, sometimes on top of, literally, each other. If a shack catches fire, it's not uncommon for a dozen or two dozen shacks to catch fire because they're so close, living on top of each other. Like I said, the boundaries are, the boundaries are expanding um, continually, but still, it's less than one square mile at this point. Within that community, it is over 99% black African. Almost entirely black African. And I would loosely estimate, again, that somewhere between 60 to 70% of that black African community 
are black South Africans, okay? people who are citizens, nationals born in South Africa, and they'd represent somewhere around nine to 10 different African ethnic groups. Now, on top of that, you then have another 30 to 40% black Africans that are foreigners. They're coming in from outside the country and they're living in Zanspreit. And they're representing maybe about half a dozen or more countries on the continent of Africa, particularly neighboring countries with poor economies like Zimbabwe, uh, Malawi, and Mozambique. And they're representing maybe another eight to 10 or more ethnic groups as well, mixing in. So hope you get the idea. Zanspreit is a real melting pot when it comes to ethnicities and culture and languages. Um, I tried to do a little bit of math. There's probably 15 to 20 or more first home native languages that are represented in Zanspreit from the people. Now, thankfully, the main black South African languages can be grouped together in two families. There's the Nguni family of languages that includes Zulu, it's a more popular language. Maybe you've heard of the Zulu tribe, Shaka Zulu, uh, the Zulu language. And then you've got Sututswana languages, right? And, and the idea of the Sutu language. Maybe you've heard of the kingdom or the country of Lesotho. It's, it's landlocked within the country of South Africa. So those are the two main families of languages. And so when people are coming to Zanspreit, either from rural South Africa, or they're coming to Zanspreit from um, other African countries, they're usually going to learn either Zulu or Sutu, one of those two languages. So thankfully, if you can speak either Zulu or Sutu, you can communicate with a large portion of the community. And you can probably communicate to some level with everyone, because when foreigners come in, the language that they're learning is Zulu. That's just kind of the trade community language that they'll pick up as foreign Africans into Zanspreit. Education's done primarily in Zulu and Sutu and also in English. So English is also, in this kind of melting pot of languages, uh, a helpful medium, especially with the younger generation. Not so much with the older, but with the younger generation who are being educated increasingly and um, being exposed to the English language through satellite TV, through schooling, through books, through music, through different media. Uh, English is becoming a language too that can bridge the community together. Why do people come to Zanspreit? Um, not because it is a paradise to live in. I'll tell you more about that in a moment, but the reason why they come either from rural South Africa okay, their home villages, their home kind of tribal lands, or from other African countries is in order to work and send money back home. The idea is primarily migrant or immigrant workers. They're going to come to Zanspreit, live literally in squalor, as you're going to see here in a moment, in the hopes that they can find work because they're, they're near Josie, the big city of Joburg, booming industry, a lot of work, a lot of jobs. They're going to find work, make money, live cheaply, kind of just survive in Zanspreit and send money back home to their families in the rural villages to build homes, to care for needs, or back home to their struggling families in other African countries. 
Here's some photos of just some structures that people are going to typically be living in and even have some businesses out of in Zonspreit. Um, down here you get some brick and cement. That's um, less common uh, throughout the community. There are probably about 300 or 400 RDP houses, um, which are usually one floor, not two like this. I didn't have a photo of an RDP house. Really simple brick and mortar or cement. Those are government provided houses that have been built for some people in the community. Uh, other people will build themselves. This is a self-built. Very uncommon to see two stories like that. More what you'll see is, is something like this, where people are building shacks on top of other structures. Very dangerous, very unstable. Most people are living, though, in these kinds of shacks that you see here. Okay? Uh, plastic, wood, uh, scrap metal. Very common is uh, kind of corrugated metal, like zinc sheets. They're going to just post them around the sides and then lay them across the tops, just typically using uh, wood, kind of just some wood beams, some wood structure, very simple, and wrap it around on all sides. Typical uh, shack in the community here is going to be somewhere between, it's going to be a one-room shack, just very simple, somewhere between 60 to 70 square feet. Now, I don't know the kind of houses you live in or the rooms you have in your homes, but most likely that's going to be smaller than your children's bedroom, 60 to 70 square feet. You're going to have a family of sometimes three, four, or more living inside of that small space. They're going to throw a bed in there that some or all of them are going to sleep on, and they're going to cram whatever else they can get into to cook their food and their possessions. So it's really tight, small spaces that people are living in. Because Zonspreid is an informal settlement, of course, you're not going to have the typical sort of city-provided access to utilities that you'd have here in Carthage, like running water, plumbing and waterborne sewage, electricity and gas. Few people will have that, very few. Probably, I don't, you could probably count them on your hands how many actually have running water and that kind of plumbing and access regularly to electricity and gas. Instead, what you'll get are a lot of community taps like this. About 15 sections, it's growing in Zonspreit, and each section will have so many community taps like that where people will come to try to get some running water to cook with, to clean with, to do laundry with, to drink, uh, to use for bathing and things like that. Where does the sewage go then? Typically right onto the streets. Hmm. You'll get porta potties. You'll get long holes. You just dig a hole in the ground. Uh, you, you put a, a toilet over it. You go to the bathroom. After a while, you just cover it back up with soil and you move somewhere else. So that's what's getting down into the, into the ground underneath. But typically, you just throw stuff out. You throw your trash out on the road and the water just carries it downhill. If it gets snagged somewhere, maybe it doesn't move. But otherwise, you get a heavy rain. It's just going downhill. It's just coursing throughout. This is just a typical walkway, just a little child right there, just raw sewage. If you got out of a car and were there for the first, I mean, you can smell it. I got used to the smell after a while. I actually kind of like it myself, kind of warmed up to it personally. But you can smell it. It just stinks. The community stinks with the open sewage. And then electricity. Now, I said they don't have access to electricity provided by the municipalities, but that doesn't mean they don't have electricity. Uh, they will run illegal hookups. 
uh, of, elect of electricity cables across bordering main streets in order to bring electricity into the community, whether for lights or for a fridge or for television or whatever they want to use it for. This is just a post here, a poll, with a lot of political signs up. These are all illegal cables. It's probably very hard to see. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They're coming down here. They're coming on the sides. They're all over the place. You, if you look down at a kind of an aerial view with a drone, you just see them. They're, they're roped over the houses. They're coming across bridges. They're coming under the roads. They're coming over the roads. They're everywhere. And people are actually making money on it. The people who are kind of in control of this, they force you to pay for their electricity if you rent a shack in their area. And it's very dangerous. Um, even recently, some children, multiple children, were killed because they made contact with these cables and were fried to death. Sunspray's a poor community, if you haven't picked that up yet. And like a typical poor community, it's going to have typical poor community vices and sins that tend to be more prevalent. It is not uncommon. I just asked Laura this again just to confirm. She said, yes, we saw this all the time. Middle of the day when people should be at work, especially young men this age, 20s, early 30s, walking down the road already drunk, just carrying open bottles and drinking. Just recently, the police had to come into Zonspreit and... Uh, they confiscated and they shut down 12 illegal shabins, places that were bringing alcohol into the community, had no license to sell it, and then were selling it to the people in the community. So drunkenness, alcohol abuse, and drug abuse uh, is a huge problem. Cheap drugs that are very addictive and that are very dangerous because of what's being mixed into them in order to get a high very cheaply. Also gambling. You'll see this on corners if you just walk or drive throughout the community. Men together again, drinking, playing craps, dice, just on the road there. Just gambling their money away, hoping to make a quick buck and just pass time in the entertainment. But it's not just stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's prostitution. It's teenage pregnancies. I mean, it's fornication. It's children that are either not being born because they're being murdered through back alley abortions or children who are being born but then neglected, not cared for, or just literally dumped to the streets. Lots of orphans in the community, little children running around, no one taking care of them. You've got huge issues with HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis because of all the immorality that's going on in the community. I mean, the, the real thriving businesses here are the shabines, the taverns, um, that are playing loud music and that are selling alcohol and, and providing an avenue for drugs and sexual immorality. So it's just a very dark, immoral community. A lot of violent crime goes on here. Police, police are scared to go into the community and actually police Zunspreit. Um, it is not uncommon that people are held up with, with knives, with guns, uh, for a cell phone, not a smartphone. Just a simple cell phone. People will threaten your life just to try to get that so they can sell it, make money, and use it for whatever they want. A lot of gang activity going on in the community. Foreigners coming, bringing drugs in, a lot of illegal trade. I guess if you can think of it, it's happening in Zonspreit. Child trafficking is happening. Children are being abducted and missing. I mean, it's just, it's all here in this one community. So there are a lot of people who, who aren't working. Um, whether because of laziness 
or because of substance abuse or because of incapacity, just older and infirmed, mental illness, whatever the reasons are. Um, but that's not everyone. Thankfully, there are a large number of people, like I said, who have come to the community intending to work or who have lived in the community long enough that they realize if they're going to survive, they need to work and they're willing to work. And it's amazing the creativity that some people have, the entrepreneurial skills to try to create some kind of business to provide for them and for their families. Most people who work in the community work outside the community, do day labor type work, manual labor, uh, construction type stuff, or domestic work. Uh, they'll be your, your maid, your servant in your home, doing house duties uh, throughout the day, or uh, gardeners. Uh, and gardeners there just take care of your lawn. So your lawn, your flowers, everything outside the house, really. And the domestic worker is inside. But within the community, uh, you see all kinds of little businesses and entrepreneurial endeavors going on. Here's a lady who is uh, doing what's called a jumble sale. That's just the common phrase people use for that. Uh, she's jumble selling clothes right there. She's probably got some roasted corn over here. I'm not sure exactly what that is from, from this distance that she's selling. They're just buying and selling things. I mean, whatever they can get their hands on, either by buying or receiving as free gifts. A lot of donations go into the community. People drop stuff off, churches, organizations, individuals. And they'll turn around and just try to sell it to people who are in the community or who are driving by in the outside boundary roads. Um, little kind of trade work type stuff. You get barbers. You get uh, hairstylists doing weaves. Um, there's just some used lampshades. Whatever they can do. People do a lot of food industry in the community. This lady has made, that might be acha, I'm not sure, pickled mango. It's something you put alongside your food to flavor it. She's probably just making a, a homemade batch of that, putting it into bags, and then she's going to sell it off to people. She might walk down the street and just announce that she has it. People might walk by. She might have a little sign up in front of her house. People will turn the fronts of their house, their shacks, into little food shacks, and they're just selling, constantly selling and trading. People are doing metal work, woodwork, work on cars, washing taxis. Again, almost if you can think of it, they're doing it to a degree, to a degree. So there's a lot of, I mean, you just get out into the community and there's just noise. I wish I should, I should have shot a video so you could just kind of get a sense of just the sound and the noise and the busyness. They're just constantly people everywhere doing something. Maybe you get a little something of that even from the photos. That's just a little bit of the kind of demographic background of the community. Um, I want to tell you a little bit too about the religious makeup so you understand something of the mindset and the, the sort of the religious climate of the community. Because it's over 99% black African, it shouldn't surprise you that the prevailing worldview that these people are coming out of is what's known as traditional African religion, uh, T-A-R. Uh, or African traditional religion, ATR, or a traditional African religious worldview. Let me just say, it's not monolithic, okay? So when I say African traditional, you can't say that it's exactly the same for, what is it, 20 or so ethnic groups that are represented in Zanspray, but it's monolithic enough, it's consistent enough across the board at its most fundamental levels that we can say, we can see certain similarities and say certain things about what they believe. Over here, I just wanted you to see a little pyramid, sort of a spiritual hierarchy to get you into the mindset of a typical African. Most black Africans do not need to be convinced by argumentation that God exists. 
They assume that. That there is out there in the distant somewhere a supreme being, a creator, what we would call God. Okay? But he is very distant from us human beings here on the earth. He's not a God who is close. He's not a God who's personal. He's not a God we interact with. He's not a God who has a hand in our everyday experiences and dealings. And that's why this middle category becomes the most important. The spirit realm, spirits. Lower than God, but higher than human beings. In between is the key, human beings and God. Good spirits, bad spirits, and most importantly, ancestral spirits. These would be literally the spirits, it's thought of the souls of the Ahmad Lodzi, the ancestors, who when they die, their spirit does not go to heaven or hell or somewhere else, but it remains on the earth, usually located close, whether in the village or in the community or in the family shrine, in the hut, they're still very close. They're the ones who control what's going on in your life every day. You don't deal with God. You don't have direct access to God. He's not involved in that. It's the ancestors. So you're having trouble bearing children. You are struggling to find work. You just got laid off. You desperately want to be married. Uh, you have a problem with drugs or alcohol. Um, you got a charge laid against you by the police. You have a, a weird sense that someone's tried to bewitch you or put a curse on you. But what do you do? Got to figure out some kind of solution. Well, who do you go to? You go to the ancestors. Well, how do you deal, though, with the ancestors if they're not right here, you know, in the flesh, like you and me are, are interacting right now and talking and listening? You go to a sangoma, traditional healer, and yanga sangoma. What does he do? He's the go-between human beings and spirits, ancestral spirits especially. He's going to divine for you why it is that you are experiencing what you don't want to be or not experiencing what you would like to be. He's going to be the one that goes and communicates with your ancestral spirits, or he's just going to somehow from that realm divine and figure out why it is that you're going through what you're going through. And then he's going to tell you what you need to do in order to change that. Perhaps that means a certain uncle, a certain aunt, a certain grandparent, needs to be honored when he's been being dishonored in your life. Maybe there needs to be a chicken sacrifice. Maybe there needs to be uh, something that you need to change in your life about the way you think or relate to that ancestor. Or he's just going to say, look, I've communed with the ancestors, and here is what they are telling me you need to do in this situation. You need to use muti, some kind of like herbal, traditional mix of things, and uh, you need to pat that on your baby's head in order to take care of her skin problem. Or you need to wrap a band around her wrist or around her belly to protect her from evil spirits that are trying to take her life. You can see how this becomes a real sort of superstitious, fear-based system of thought. Where people are just constantly trying to get out of curses and avoid curses and get blessings. Not by their own efforts or their own work, one way or the other but somehow appeasing and being in the good favor and avoiding the frown of ancestral spirits and other spirits. So it's very common for Sangomas to be present. They're in the community of Zanspreit, and I'm sure they have very good business. They don't do their services for free. 
This is their job, this is their vocation. There's training schools to become lifelong Sangomas, to work and serve people in this way. And it is such a gripping worldview that even Christians who come out of this worldview, it's not uncommon, they have their baby and they bring their baby to Bible study and what's around their baby's belly? A red string tied together. And you know exactly what that's for, to protect that baby from evil spirits. And you go, wait a minute, I thought you've trusted in the omnipotent, almighty Jesus Christ who controls all things, including evil spirits. Well, I did, but... <laughs> I mean, it's just like us, isn't it? The old habits, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living just shows itself differently in this community. This is something of the foundation. It's fascinating. I encourage you, if you want to know more, look into it for yourself to understand the African mindset um, that we're dealing with in Zanspray. Now, what sort of churches and organizations are there, sort of quasi-Christian groups in and around Zanspray? The most prevalent are what are known as African indigenous churches or Zionist churches. Here's a photo of a Zionist church meeting out in a field, just in an open field. Typical for them to be wearing uniforms, gathering under the open sky in a field, usually on a Sunday like this in large numbers. African indigenous churches are not a good thing. You might think, well, that's a good thing that Africans have tried to indigenize the gospel and, and make African-style Christian churches, right, in their country. Uh, wrong. Uh, what happened is, is that these were birthed out of mainline denominations, for better or worse, who in the earliest, early 20th century existed in South Africa. And Africans, black Africans, felt were not getting equal representation among the leadership, uh, the style of worship, the, the things that are going on, it's not African. And so you might go, okay, there's maybe something good there. But what ends up happening is, is that these men step up, like uh, Lekhanyani or Shembe or Modise. These are men who stepped up and formed these African indigenous churches. They break away from the mainline denominations or just start new ones all on their own. And they end up becoming sort of African messianic figures to this church or to this group of people. They become sort of living prophets uh, who hear from God and almost like a cult who control these groups of people. And the practices are unbiblical. And not only are they unbiblical, but oftentimes they're anti-biblical. And what's going on in these African indigenous churches is not just a Africanizing of biblical Christianity, but a mixing, a syncretistic mixing of biblical Christianity, if you could even call it that, some semblance of the Bible, really with African pagan traditions, like the use of muti and sangomas and ancestral veneration and worship and the like. And what ends up happening is, is the rules are basically set by this man until he dies, and then you know how it goes. There's a power struggle, and it, usually a group breaks into two because the son says he was the next one in line, but the nephew says no, he promised it to him. That's happened with several. It's happening right now with the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. People are being killed over a power struggle of a supposed Christian church. That's going to be the most prevalent Christian groups in Zanspreit. But then you're also going to get a lot of apostolic, self-proclaimed apostles, prophetic, self-made prophets, ministries, promising deliverance and healing in the community. This is a man by the name of Percy Makube or Makuba. Uh, he leads Percy Word of Healing Ministries. You can tell what that's about. He's the man of God who's going to stand up and speak healing into your life. 
Speak deliverance into your life, breakthrough. He's going to speak health, wealth, and prosperity into your life. Huge issue there in the community. You've got word of faith teaching that's rife, charismatic excesses, undue emphasis, and unbiblical expressions of the so-called charisma, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then you've got some kind of more mainline groups as well, um, for worse. You've got Jehovah's Witnesses who are very present, walking around in the streets going shack to shack, spreading satanic lies in the community. You've got Seventh-day Adventists, Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, all the way from Brazil, is is over there and in the community. Uh, Roman Catholicism is common. By my estimation, and I could be off here, um, because I've not just kind of scanned the whole community. I tried to reach out and, and connect with some church leaders in the community. I estimate there might be three to five. That might be generous. I don't know evangelical churches. And what I mean by that is, is they're trying to teach a biblical gospel at least, okay, an evangel, that you can't be saved by your works, that if you don't trust in Christ, you're under the judgment of God, you have to be saved by the grace of God by believing in Jesus alone, and that are trying to some degree to to found their ministry and their teaching and their church on the scriptures, okay, to differing degrees. But unfortunately, Almost every one of those are going to be influenced by these three categories of things. Word of faith teaching, health, wealth, prosperity, and charismatic excesses. I don't know personally of one, what what I might call a reformed, evangelical, baptistic, healthy local church. Maybe just one, David Tsetse. But I need to get to know him more and hear more of his teaching and be at his church more to confirm that. 100 to 200,000 people. You can see why we were burdened, I was burdened, Antioch Bible Church was burdened to try to plant a church in this community. So there's clear challenges, okay, to the work there in Zonspreit. Transitory nature of the community. Is it long-term sustainable? Even believers don't want to live there long-term if they can find something better. Language, making sure people understand when you're evangelizing them. Unifying a group of believers under one language so you could be one church. The Christian, so-called Christian culture and traditional African worldview, having to deconstruct that and go deep enough to know that you're getting really at the heart with the gospel and discipleship. The reality of first-generation believers, those who come to Christ are coming out of a dark past and living in a dark environment. And so it's a struggle for them to stay holy and to raise up godly leaders in homes and in churches. Now, I do want to transition and just talk about, though, this, this Bible study that we've had and what's going on, what we hope will happen. But just at this point, any questions on the sort of demographics, the community background, the religious makeup, anything along those lines before I tell you about the Bible study? Yeah, Ryan. Right. Yeah. Should I repeat that just for the sake of the uh, audio? Yeah. So Ryan's asked about families. Um, what are you know the, the presence of families there? And yeah. So 
what I my understanding was is that originally, and I might not have all this correct, was that um, initially it wasn't families moving in as family units, right? It would be individuals, typically men who were coming, looking for work. And then maybe later they might bring some of their family into the area, especially if they thought or intended to be living there longer. Um, or they would start a family. But when you hear me say start a family, don't think that means take a wife, marry her, have a child, and, and have a real healthy nuclear family, you know, in the community. Uh, usually what that means is, is go and impregnate someone, not marry them, not man up to your responsibilities of husbanding and fathering, and now you've got a woman who's in the community with a child out of wedlock, and she's either going to have a go-go or an aunt come and take care of the child so she can go to work or she's going to send the child back home. So you've got kind of families there, but not strong families, like just healthy husband and wife living together, raising their own children, one or both parents working families. It's just not common. So a lot of broken families, a lot of fatherlessness, a lot of sort of patchworked a man and a woman and her cousin and his grandmother all kind of maybe living together or next to each other in a couple shacks. Is that kind of yeah. answering your question there? Yeah. Okay. And then along with that, um, I would assume a lot of times in migrant communities, they, like there's, they're coming, like you said, to kind of support back home. Mm. Um, and I know sometimes it's more like a sojourning concept of we're going to be here while we're back. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally happening. Right. So I don't think people who have been there for 20 years and some have necessarily thought right from the beginning, I'm going to be here 20 years. There are some people now I did mention the transitory nature and that is a challenge. It's informal, but it is starting to be recognized increasingly by the government. And so it is starting to kind of formalize little by little, and they're investing in the community. They're wanting to lay down some roads and, and build more plots and bring some more utilities into the community. Um, so it's kind of happening, but they've been saying that for many years, and it causes a lot of rioting and protest issues over that. Um, so, yeah, the majority of people, I don't think, at least who are already there and who were there originally, planned to be there long term but probably realize, you know what, I've not been able to find consistent work as, as often as I thought I could. So they just kind of scratch it together and just survive. Some go back home and then some come back again and try their luck again another time. So I've known people who have done uh, all of those, yeah. But it does seem like I think there will be an increasing number of people who will think of Zonsprate as a place to be more permanently in the years to come. I could be wrong there, but I think it's moving in that direction. I think it's going to get less migrant overall, I think. But, yeah. Maybe one more question. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're talking about the area. You said it's kind of a square mile. Yeah, um, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good question. Transportation, movement around the community. Um, so if you're going from one point to another in the community, you'll just walk. 
even if it takes 20 minutes, half hour, you'll just walk, you'll double up, you'll take the, the pathways and things. As far as movement in and out of the community for work, for groceries, if people are going to church outside the community, they do have taxis. So that's a big business in Johannesburg, are taxis. And they do have, they actually built a taxi rank, um, a taxi station right there in the community. It's actually kind of a, a nicer one. I didn't show a photo of it. So most people will be using public transport to go in and out of the community. Yeah, cool. That's good questions. Okay, so with the time left, like I said, I just want to um, just share a bit of what the Lord has allowed us to do and been, what the Lord himself, I think, through us has been doing in Zonspreit with a Bible study we've had there for about two and a half years now. And I think it's amazing, given all, given all those challenges you just heard about, that he's allowed us to, to have and to start this Bible study in the community. Uh, where are we meeting? We're meeting in a place called Mtonjeni. It's a Sutu word for springs. It is a community center that's owned by another church outside of the community of Zanspreit, an Afrikaans church. I'm not even sure they teach the true gospel in their church, but they wanted to invest in the community. They bought this property. Uh, they want to use it for different things to kind of do social development and, and sort of spiritual development in the community. And I'm thankful they're there because it's allowed us to rent this little structure. So for the first two years, we rented that little structure there. This is the inside of it almost just like a trailer that we rented and we just packed people in. We just went out and handed out flyers and said, we're starting a Bible study in Zonspreit. I knew someone from the community who was our initial contact. I'll tell you a little bit about him here in a moment. And we just gathered people together. And for two years, we've had a Bible study going on on Saturday, typically Saturday morning, about 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., so they're seven hours ahead of us right now. So if you think, if you wake up on a Saturday morning at 3 a.m. and you're struggling to go back to sleep, Bible study starting in Zanspreit. You can just pray for that Bible study almost every week. Um, so we were meeting in this structure for about two years. And then I thought it was almost inevitable that at some point they were going to tell us, you just can't rent the structure anymore. I mean, we're only, we're paying just a little bit each week on a Saturday. They are renting these spaces out to other organizations, so it is a business for this church. Um, I'm not sure they consider us, you know, like a real high priority as far as ministry in the community. I thought, boy, there's just going to be a time. Some weeks they'd move us around on the property. We couldn't meet here because they had put some stuff from the clothing drive in here, and so we meet outside or we meet in a building up here at the top. Sorry, never outside, always in a building, uh, either up at the top or you can't see it in the picture, but in another little structure up at the top. Um, so there's always that lingering question. Then sure enough, COVID comes, the group doesn't meet for a few months, and then they want to start meeting again in June after the lockdown's lifted. And the management tells us, sorry, we've got other plans for that structure. Can't rent it. Well, what do we do now? I mean... We don't get large numbers of people, but where are we going to put them? We can't put them in a 60 to 70 square foot shack um, and have a real profitable meeting. At least we didn't think so. Thankfully, the Lord provided on that same property, this church that owns the property, they built a structure here, just a real simple prefabricated with corrugated zinc again on top structure for their own church in the community that's used on Sundays. So the management thankfully said to us, you, use it, you need it on Saturday. Here, why don't you go inside this large space on Saturday? 
So actually we have a larger space now. It's a nicer space. We hope it'll be a more consistent space that we can meet in for the same cost. So the Lord worked that out for our good, for the group. When we meet together, the structure of what we do in our meeting has changed over time. Uh, It's evolved from when we first started uh, until what they were just doing yesterday as they met together in this room. Uh, But typically right now, it's a very simple thing. I think you'll recognize some of these elements. The group comes together in this building and someone usually opens up reading a psalm and just giving a few short devotional remarks from a psalm. And then they will share any prayer requests and they will pray together as a group. And then someone will lead in one or two songs. Why don't you just get a little taste of some African singing? Modimo riboka wena. Modimo God riboka. We praise, we thank wena you. I was telling Ryan earlier, um, most African songs, traditional in the vernacular, going to be pretty simple, very repetitive. Uh, We might think that it's shallow, and it probably is, honestly, to some degree, but it also may represent just the cultural practice of the way you honor a superior by bowing in front of him and giving praise in a repetitious way. So this is the traditional way they'll sing. Um, You may have heard their call and response. Someone leads out with the words, and as they're halfway through with their uh, saying, the whole group joins in as a chorus and will sing it. It's actually really beautiful. I wonder if Africans have some of the the most beautiful voices on the earth, just the way they sing, both the men and the women. So they'll sing a couple songs, and then there'll be a time of teaching. We give the lion's share of the meeting to teaching. We think that's the most important thing to do in the meeting. So we open up the scriptures. Men will either stand at the front, like Molabatsi here, and give a typical monologue sermon. Some brothers, when I'm there teaching personally, I just huddle them up in a circle, and we just do a bit more kind of Socratic, dialogical teaching, where I'm just opening it up, asking a lot of questions, doing interaction. So the meeting can vary, even from teacher to teacher, on the style of what's going on. But the aim is the same. We're trying to get at what the scriptures say, understand and apply it to their lives. The first two years we were there, we did a six, about a six week. It took maybe about eight weeks. So about two, a little over two months doing a Christianity Explained course, just the gospel. Fundamentals of Christianity, throwing the net out wide, teaching people about who Jesus is, what he's done in salvation, how we can be saved through him. Then for about a year and a half, we literally went verse by verse through the entire gospel of John. Team teaching. Right from the beginning, I've wanted to be intentional about having men, either from Antioch, African men particularly, or from the community, and a team of men together teaching paragraph by paragraph through the Gospel of John. Again, that was heavily evangelistic, still trying to figure out who are the believers, where are people at, who could potentially form a core of a church plant in this community. And a core started to kind of come together. And so at the beginning of this year, 
uh, we thought, let's continue in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, really nice corollaries to the Gospel of John, and let's speak now particularly to those core members who are believers in the group, and yet let's be mindful that others are present who don't know Christ and give the Gospel to them at the same time. So we're, we're trying to sort of primarily use this meeting now for believers, but also secondarily in an evangelistic way, because it's still wide open. We still invite people from the community to come to the meeting in hopes that they'll come to know Christ. Sometimes there'll be some discussion. Again, right, you guys know there's the sort of normal way you would do things, and then there's the COVID way <laughs> that you're currently doing things. Well, it's the same in South Africa. So typically after the teaching, we'd have a meal together. We'd have lunch together and further discuss, either in groups or as one large group, uh, sometimes in multiple languages with translation, to make sure people are understanding. Do they have questions? Discussing it. Kind of like, I guess, what you guys are doing here with your home fellowship groups after a Sunday service. Eating together, fellowship, and discussing the teaching. What other ministry is going on connected with this group? Um, we didn't plan this, but the Lord did. It just happened. I didn't plan that either. Um, the first Saturday we showed up to have an adult Bible study. That was my main focus, to reach adults in the community. Children showed up. They just showed up. And increasingly, week by week, the word kind of spread among some of them and some other people in the community. And we're not the only group in the community, but for some reason we started to have sometimes 40 to 50 children show up at the same time we were doing the adult Bible study. And so we said, well, why don't we do something with the kids since they're coming? And so a group of uh, servants from Antioch would come and sometimes teaming up with people from the community in our group. We wanted to encourage them to be serving in these ways. They just do a simple little program with the kids. It's, it's, when I say program, it's not like real structured. It's just singing one or two songs, teaching them maybe a Bible verse uh, to memorize, uh, some teaching from scripture or a scriptural book some games and interaction, maybe a simple craft, and maybe a snack of food, something like that. Lasts maybe 45 minutes to an hour. Um, that stopped with COVID. It actually hasn't even started. I'm not sure this meeting with the children will even start maybe until the beginning of next year. Um, evangelism is a big part of what we're doing in the community, obviously as a church plant. This is the inside of a hospital clinic. It's the only government clinic in the community. One for over 100,000 people. It's overwhelmed by the, the physical health needs of the community. Um, we had an open door at the time. Again, this closed, and we're hoping it'll reopen again after COVID. Uh, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, myself, Mohai, and Taba, I'll introduce you to them here in a moment, were there preaching the gospel out of the scriptures, just evangelistically, just opening up the Bible and speaking to a group of people there and then taking any questions and interaction that they had. They give us about 20 minutes with this group inside and then another 20 minutes or so with another group outside. And then we try to have conversations, hand out tracts, uh, flyers to invite people to the Bible study. We're also doing that heavily on the streets on Saturdays. I would do it during the week when I'm in there, but people who are working, who want to help with the work, come on Saturdays while we're having the adult Bible study. They're out on the streets engaging people one-to-one, tracks, Bibles open, giving the gospel, inviting to the Bible study. Also, part of our outreach, again, this wasn't like a planned part of our outreach, but when you're working with an impoverished community, it just, it's going to happen. People have needs, material needs in the community. 
And so one way in which we can try to show the love and compassion of Christ, build relationships for the gospel, is by meeting and helping with some of those needs. This is a lady, Mom Modise, whose shack was just deplorable, the state of it. It was sunken down on the roof, leaking everywhere. So the Lord provided the funds, and uh, some of the men from our very own group, uh, with their own hands, helped to build her a new shack, clear out her plot of land, give her a new fence. And we're just hoping that that lady will see the love of Christ through that act, will continue to come to the Bible study, and we'll have opportunities to share the gospel with her and that she would be saved. At other times, Antioch Bible Church partnered in help by collecting food, just simple things like that to just help people, especially in particular community needs, uh, for the sake, hopefully, of building relationships for the gospel. Who are some of the, the key co-workers uh, with me while I've been there? Um, they've all really come from Antioch Bible Church. That's the church Laura and I were at, and we were working out of and under in Zanspreit. Uh, the main brother, my right-hand man, is Martin Sitifani. He is just a good Zulu brother, um, godly man, mature man, a real student of the scriptures, has a heart for evangelism, has a heart for the community of Zanspreit, desires to be an elder, perhaps, if a church is planted in Zanspreit. He's still at Antioch. He lives just outside the community. Um, that's his wife, Nikhlali, and their daughter, Imange. He is studying at Shepherd Seminary. It's a seminary that Antioch Bible Church started with some other churches to train men for pastoral ministry. He is actually overseeing the work under the oversight of Antioch while I'm here in the States. So he's the lead guy there right now. He's the point man. And I just try to interact with him regularly to think about things, pray about things, plan for the future, find out how things are going. Um, here's another brother, Bongani Masango. Uh, he has a real heart for evangelism. So he's the guy that will come, prefers not even to be at the Bible study, but to be out on the streets just talking to people and engaging with unbelievers with the gospel. But he also helps uh, in the rotation of teaching. Um, I'd like to mentor him personally if we get back to South Africa. We almost had him move in with us um, before we came back here because I wanted just to pour into him at a one-to-one -one level. Um, this is his girlfriend, Nicole. They're pretty serious. They might get married. And her friend, Nondu Miso. Miso's there with Martha and Josefina, some ladies from the community. They're also at Antioch, living outside the community. They're coming, especially Miso is coming, trying to come more regularly, build relationships with ladies. Uh, so we're trying through evangelism, through teaching, through mentoring. There's other people who are mentoring the core believers on a regular basis from Antioch. So the Lord has provided a real good team of people. And I highlight these people, these two, three, four, maybe five, um, not because they're the only co-workers, but if we were to plant a church, I've had discussions with them, and some of them are inclined to, and some of them, I hope, are thinking and praying that if we start a church, I actually would like them to be part of that church. Not just help start it, but actually be there as members of the church more long-term and keep pouring into and discipling the group there and seeing if the Lord might even multiply and spread churches in Zanspreit. Some of the core group members, Mohai, his wife Rendani, Katlejo, their son, and Kamu, their newborn, and Tabo and his wife Martha. These two brothers are the real potential leaders from within the community. Okay, I mentor Mohai, I've been mentoring Mohai for two and a half, almost three years now, we would meet sometimes two, sometimes three times a week. Currently, we talk once a week through an internet application on our phones, just trying to mentor him in godliness, but especially uh, Martin, 
who I mentioned over here. Martin is meeting up with Tabo. So we're trying one-to-one -to, -one to mentor them and to help them grow in their ability to study scripture, to teach scripture, in their evangelism, to develop shepherds' hearts. We're hoping that at least Mahai, maybe even Tabo, and hopefully Martin, would be two of the first elders in the church plant once we constitute it officially. This is a single lady, uh, Bessie Malapo. Uh, also, these are all either Sutu from Lesotho or from South Africa, these three. She is from South Africa. And this is a man, Jaffet, by the way, Ryan, to your point earlier, here's two families. That's just amazing. I've had missionaries that are in rural areas in Limpopo in the Northeast say, you've got two families, like husbands who are committed to their wives and raising their children faithfully in your group. That's amazing. We've been praying for that for years. The Lord has been really kind in allowing us to, these were believers when we met them, by the way. They weren't converted under our ministry, so they have just been a real gift along the way. Bessie, I'm not sure if she's been converted during the ministry or came to us as a believer. I think the latter. Jafet Sinkala, um, he is from Malawi. That's his wife, Abby. She is not a believer. You can pray for her salvation. He is living in the community, came down out of a Roman Catholic and then sort of a Pentecostal, well, not Roman Catholic, sorry, a Presbyterian background, but no gospel in his Presbyterian church. You guys don't know anything about that. Um, so Presbyterian background, no gospel. He believes he can be saved by his works. He comes, he starts going to Antioch, comes to our Bible study in Zonspreit, is meeting with me and another brother, and he comes to know Christ and trust in the saving grace of God. So here's someone who actually has been converted during our time in Zonspreit, and I'm just really thankful for this brother Jaffet. He really wants to teach his family, his wife, the scriptures, and do the right thing, it seems, before the Lord. That's our core group. You know, not many, not mighty, not strong, a small flock, but two, four, five, six people from the community at this point. There's others who come. Um, any given week, it could be 10 to 20 people at our Bible study. So in addition to these six, there might be a couple other believers in our midst. We don't know. We hope to find out as we move more toward becoming a church. We're now trying to follow up on a semi-regular basis with visitors to find out where are they at with Christ. Follow up with them. Give them the gospel if they're unsaved. If they're saved, talk to them about the need to be part of a church, to be part of the group in the scriptures, and to mentor them as well. So I thought it just might be helpful for you to sort of meet by picture and a little description uh, some of the people in the core group, potential leaders in the group. Plans for the group. Mind of man plans his ways. The Lord directs his steps. We hope to take steps toward covenanting together as a local church. Baptisms. Informed commitment. Covenanting together. Having membership. And as I said, that'd be the core from Zonspray with some others, uh, hopefully from Antioch. We'd move, hopefully, to a Sunday believers meeting and be able to eat the Lord's Supper together and have a meeting. I appreciate your commitment here that the Sunday meeting is meant primarily for the edification of believers. Evangelism doesn't happen primarily in that meeting, but we would hopefully leave the Saturday meeting open for an evangelistic meeting as well and continue to do evangelism in the community. Uh, continue to disciple believers, just simple, just trying to equip them to obey Jesus in their marriage, in the workplace, in the community, and to be a witness for Christ, and hopefully appoint leaders. As I said, hopefully Martin and possibly either Mahai and or Tabo, and hopefully 
in the Lord's timing to have an autonomous, healthy local church there that's just doing what we're doing here in Carthage and in Kansas City, just in that community in Zunspreit. I've got other ministry I'd be interested to try while I'm there and some prayer points, but any questions? And then maybe I can, I can leave those up or I'm just looking at the clock. It's half past 10. It's probably a good time to, to stop. So should I take any questions or should I just stop there? And then maybe if you, why don't we stop there? And then if you guys have questions in between the services or after the main service, we're going to be here. Feel free to grab my wife or grab me and, and ask some more about what I'd hope to do if we go back in addition to establishing the church and then some prayer. I'll leave these prayer points up there for you guys. You can take a photo of it. I'll send it to Ryan, something like that. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Thank you, guys. Well, let's maybe uh, wrap up here uh, this morning with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, first and foremost that Marco is able to be here this morning. Uh, to tell us about how the gospel is advancing um, in Zensprite and uh, the work that they're able to do there. And uh, as we hear about the need uh, that there is uh, for the gospel, of course, we pray uh, for his efforts there. We are, of course, thankful, just as he mentioned, that they have these families that are able to help lead and contribute to the beginning of this plant. We pray, Father, that you would um, enable them to covenant together as a body and uh, be built up uh, as they worship you on this Sunday morning service that they want to get started here. Uh, we pray as well um, that you would continue to grant uh, fruit and opportunity. Um, we think about this uh, you know, evangelistic study that they have on Saturday night, that there might be fruit from that. Um, of course, that you might open up other opportunities as well. And uh, we thank you for your provision in all of it. Again, we think of the situation with the building and um, how, you know, it, it maybe for a moment looked as if uh, things were going to be difficult for their meeting together and instead you just opened up <laughs> further and uh, we thank you for your your blessing and your mercy in that. We think about the ministry to these kids that they have and um, all these uh, young hearts that are able to hear something of uh, Christ and uh, through the ministry that they're doing there and we pray that you would um, enable that to begin meeting again and be able to have them you know share the gospel with these children and uh, Father, of course, there's many other things that we could pray for that we don't, some of which we're not even, we don't even know about still, we're still learning about, and, uh, but we pray that you would bless this work and that you do that for the glory of your name as the gospel advances. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.